So Luke chapter 15, verses uh, 1 through 7. I just realized I can put the passage still up there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This is God's word. Um, This past spring break, uh, if you were here in the spring, you knew that a group of us went to Chicago on a mission trip. Uh, We went and worked with a ministry there called called Sunshine Gospel Ministries. They do a tremendous work in kind of the south side of Chicago in a bunch of the the neighborhoods in that area. And so those of us who went, we worked on, uh, some of us worked in like the public school system and assisted teachers because they're overwhelmed in numbers and in um, just the craziness of elementary kids. Some of us worked helping some local pastors, uh, sometimes physically on their buildings, other times organizing stuff in the church and in schools. Um, but, but there were other college groups there. And so in the evenings, what we do is someone from that, that ministry would come and talk to us. And they talk about a lot of different things about urban poverty and um, how, what it's like to come in from the outside into a situation like that. And around those talks, there was singing, much like we do here at RUF and uh, some of the other uh, schools brought in musicians. And we had a few of our musicians who went. And so we sang a few songs. One night we were sitting there singing and I was toward the back sitting with a couple other campus ministers. And they started playing this song that I had never heard before. And uh, it was a, a decent song, but then it got to one place in the song that just had a really, like, really cheesy line in it, really bad. And um, so in my theological snobbery, I looked at the other campus minister and said, that is really stupid. <laughs> That's a stupid song. And, um, and so we kind of laughed about it, you know, it was, uh, because I was being a jerk, and we laughed about it and, and all that. Well, they played it about three more times that week, so we got to laugh about it a lot. And the week was over, and we pack up in the van, and we're driving home. And because I was driving a van with 13 girls in it, I had some earphones in. Um, and so uh, nothing against girls. It was just a lot of girls. Um, and so uh, I was sitting there, and I got on YouTube, uh, and I typed in the name of that song, How He Loves Us. It's a, David Crowder redid it. It's another guy who wrote it. And I went to YouTube and listened to this song. And I put it on repeat. And I listened to it for an hour. And it really began to touch me. And it got something deep within me. Because there's a very simple refrain and chorus to this song. And it simply says this. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. You know, I've been to seminary. I spent a lot of time studying the Bible, of, of taking these deep theological tests and all of a sudden not bragging. I'm telling on myself to say that somewhere in the midst of, of studying these profound truths of Christianity and the Bible, systematic theology and all this stuff, considering God's creation, considering you know, predestination and man's um, you know, free will and freedom and all that, and just tremendous things that, that people have fought over and talked about for thousands of years. 
somewhere in the midst of all of that, I had lost sight of that very simple message. That God loves people. That God loves us. And for me, I was hearing it saying, and God loves you. God loves me. It became very personal somewhere in that trip in Chicago. So I don't know what your experience to date with God has been like. I don't. We're kind of, there's a lot of people here. Some of you uh, think God is awesome. And um, you're here tonight and you're just, you're really ready to worship and ready to praise and ready to sing and all the things that, that we've been doing is just awesome. Some of you are frustrated because somebody, maybe a high school youth minister or a parent or somebody promised you or told you that if you follow God, your life is going to look this one way or it's going to turn out this way and, you know, boom, 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 these things will happen. You'll have a good life. And that, that hasn't happened, so you're frustrated. Others of you uh, are confused. Others disappointed. Some of you are empty at the thought of God. For some of you, it feels like when you try to approach God that there's some sort of, of barrier there. You don't know what it is or what comprises that barrier, but it's there and you feel like either your prayers or your efforts in trying to learn more about God, they go nowhere. For some, you think you've done too many bad things. You think that right now you're involved in things that preclude you from God's love and exclude you from that. That makes you sad that you don't know what to do. Well, in this short parable... I want to tell you a very simple message. That God loves you. That God loves you. And I don't mean that in this kind of, hey, let's just don't talk about anything deep. Let's, you know, God is love and God just loves everybody and this whole thing. It's kind of in a broad sweeping sort of way. I want it to be very personal tonight. And I want you to see that God loves you personally. And God has given us this parable to illustrate that very point as we look at this shepherd and the sheep that he lost. So we're going to see this best as we look at the job of the shepherd and then as we look at the joy of the shepherd. So uh, let's look at the job of the shepherd. Well, the telling of a parable uh, about a shepherd to a group of Pharisees who we see Jesus is addressing in those first three verses has a special problem. Um, because on one hand, uh, in their holy book, in the, in the Jewish Old Testament, or it's our Old Testament now for, for Christians, but the Old Testament of the Bible, there were these kind of, these, uh, kind of mainstays of the faith, these rock stars of the faith. Abraham uh, had sheep and had, had lots of flocks, and so at some level he was a parable, I mean, a prophet. Moses himself, um, the great kind of the great prophet of uh, of Judaism, of the Israeli religion, was a shepherd. King David, who was the greatest king that this nation ever knew, was a shepherd. And then Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 34 of of his prophecy, he talks about how um, that, that the kings were referred to as shepherds, just all kings in general, as they as they looked out over their people. And then obviously the most, the most obvious is in Psalm 23 when God himself says uh, through David, the Lord is my shepherd. So for a Pharisee, for someone who held to the Old Testament, they had this grand kind of picture of a shepherd. It was an exalted, noble thing. 
But on the other hand, in the first century, when the rubber met the road, the shepherds were not elevated in society. They were kind of at a peasant level. They were employed, so they weren't beggars, but they were not like on the upper rungs of society. And so the Pharisees then would have, a, would have had a problem with this because they were superior to the shepherds in their profession, in their standing in the society. But beyond that, the shepherds were dealing with animals and the filth of animals. And so religiously, shepherds would be unclean. And we don't have to go into the whole history of that, but that was a big deal. That was a big deal in the religious service at that time, that you were unclean, you were a sinner. You see, there were two... Two ways you could become a sinner. One is through one of these professions that brought you in contact with unclean things. Another one was through uh, obvious disobeyal or breaking of the law of God. Either one of those qualified you as a sinner. When you had been labeled as a sinner, that put you on certain kind of religious fringe. And so shepherds were seen uh, as on the outside. But if you'll notice, when Jesus begins this parable... He brings the the Pharisees right into the middle of this and he shocks their sensitivities on this issue because he opens up and he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep? So he is saying, look, you're a shepherd. He kind of brings them in. You're the shepherd here, which would have been very nerve wracking for them. And yet it's a very powerful attack on the way they viewed people. Jesus isn't content to play by the religious rules and their hierarchy. He's coming in and saying, look, which one of you is a shepherd? Having a hundred sheep, you know, wouldn't leave the 99 for the one, as he would go on to say. So he's forcing the Pharisees to see, as he does all over the gospel accounts, that everything that they thought made them right with God, or everything they thought that made them morally superior to others, or in some way better than, or holier than, or whatever it was, Jesus is coming out, as he does everywhere, and says, that is bogus. That means nothing in God's eyes. And so he enters them into the story as shepherds. Which one of you having a hundred sheep? But that's not all because after all, what's a shepherd's job? A shepherd's only job is to watch the sheep. He takes the sheep sometimes from uh, like the courtyard of a house. He takes the sheep out to the country to let it graze in the countryside or to the owner of the sheep's property, perhaps outside the city. And the shepherd watches over the sheep. That's it. He keeps the sheep. That's the only thing that a shepherd does. But notice here that it doesn't say that the sheep is lost in a passive sense. It's an active thing. This shepherd loses a sheep. I'm not sure what the translation in front of you says, but in the Greek it's saying the shepherd loses the sheep. The shepherd hasn't done his job. And so he's drawing them in further and saying, if this is you and you lose one of these sheep, which one of you wouldn't leave the 99 who are still together and go after that one? Who wouldn't do that? Of course you would. You're a shepherd. Your whole job is to bring the sheep back home at night and present them to the owner. Sheep were common, yes, but sheep were valuable. They were means to, to food and to drink and to their, the wool and all that stuff. So he's saying, who wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't leave these 99 sheep to go after the one? So that's their job. It's quite simple. But Jesus draws his listeners and he draws us into the story a little deeper. And he does that by talking about the joy of the shepherd and what goes on here. 
So here's what's happening with most of our minds at this point, I, I would guess. Is that when you think, okay, there's uh, either 99, there's this group of sheep right here, and then one has been lost somewhere along the way. In the grazing or, or whatever it is, one has been lost. And so what I've always thought about this is that you have the shepherd who then goes away from the 99, you know, leaves them either with somebody else or maybe it was expected that most of them would stay together even if unattended. And you have the shepherd who's kind of going on the countryside being like, here, sheepy, sheepy, you know, whatever you do with cats or dogs. I'm like, here's the shepherd doing this. And he's like, oh, there you are behind the rock. And he kind of scoots over there and I love you. I'm so glad to see you. You know, he pokes the sheep and all this stuff. Um... Because that's what you do with your animals, right? You just poke them. Um, but uh, the man who, who I've been consulting a lot on this stuff, a guy named Ken Bailey, who lives in the Middle East, has spent his entire, or most of his life, and certainly his entire adult life over there, studying the culture, studying scriptures, and asking people in that area, hey, help me make sense of what the Bible is saying, culturally and everything. Um, he looks up and says this. Uh, He says, a lost sheep will lie down helplessly and refuse to budge. The shepherd, upon finding that sheep, is forced to carry it over a long distance to either rejoin the pack or to go home. So here's the picture. That the sheep has split off from the group. It is lost. Uh, It's hiding behind that rock that was right there. And it is plopped down, sitting there. It doesn't want to move. It doesn't want to do anything. So the shepherd's only choice is to grab this sheep and put it over his shoulders and walk back to town. Now let's talk talk sheep for just a second. I love talking about sheep. Um, I know nothing about sheep, but I have read. So uh, the the female sheep called a ewe? Ewe? I was like, ewe or ewe? Uh, A ewe lamb. Female sheep weigh somewhere between 90 and 300 pounds when they're mature, okay? Male sheep, a ram, weighs anywhere from 150 to 450 pounds when it's mature. So let's go conservative. Let's say 90, or if it's a dude, 150. So for the ladies, think 90, guys, think 150. Um, That's at the low end. So here's this shepherd who sees this sheep, this massive animal sitting there who is not moving, who's not doing anything. And the shepherd is forced to throw this thing up on his neck and take it back home. I don't care how jacked you are. I don't care how much time you spend in the waiting room and how big your biceps are, your chest, your lap. I don't care if you're the size of Jorge. I told you I was going to give a shout out. Jorge is jacked. If Jorge sees that sheep right there... He's not going to be excited at the prospect of carrying this thing all the way back to the village or to rejoin the sheep. He's not. But surprisingly in verse 5, look down or look back with me. In verse 5 we read that this shepherd lays the sheep upon his shoulders and he rejoices. What is wrong with this guy? He's crazy. He's rejoicing that he gets to throw this sheep upon his neck and carry him back to the village or back to the crowd. Or, you know, the, the crowd of sheep. So not only at this point are the Pharisees, have they been drawn in as shepherds, now they have hot, nasty pig tummy on the back of their neck with wool, you know, just being all nasty all over them and they're unclean and all this stuff. And so here is a Pharisee who is very kind of clean and prissy, who's lugging this sheep, this massive, nasty sheep back to town. 
I can promise you they're not excited about what's unfolding in front of them. And they've been drawn in right into the middle of it. And then the parable goes on and it finishes in verse 6 and says, And when he comes home, uh, the shepherd, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Another man who um, Bailey knows over there, he says that, um, that the shepherd placed the sheep on his shoulders, catch this, knowing that the hard work is yet before him. So when he puts it on his shoulders, it says he rejoices, knowing that he's about to have to take this huge journey with this thing on his shoulders. And yet, the shepherd rejoices. You see, the story doesn't end with the shepherd finding the sheep. Because after the sheep is found, it must be restored. It must be brought back home to its kind. It must be brought back to its owner. You know... It's entirely possible that as we read this story, as you think about it, and certainly as I thought about it for a long time, that we think the point of the story is that the shepherd is willing to leave the 99 and go for the one. We think that's the climax of the story. And we begin to think about God as he is kind of the good shepherd. We think, man, that is awesome. That God would leave, you know, the majority and come after the one. And there's something very beautiful about that, very personal about that. And that is absolutely true. As the gospel becomes personal to us. But I don't think that's the climax of the story. And that's certainly not what is suggested um, as we look at this. Because you think about it. If if, If God is being interjected into this story as the shepherd figure, it was the shepherd's job to bring the sheep home. And so if God would would be finding us individually and bringing us home under this system, then it would be kind of a dutiful and mechanical thing that God does. But he could be mad the whole time while he's doing it. But that's not what we see. We see that the shepherd rejoices when he finds that one sheep and knows that the burden is yet ahead of him to bring that sheep home. The shepherd starts rejoicing. Let me ask you this. When was the last time... You thought about God rejoicing over you and your mess. When you think about all of the junk that you have done, when you think about your brokenness and your shame and all of the things that you want to stop doing but that you can't stop doing and that you hate about yourself and that are embarrassing, that you you struggle to pray about, that you certainly struggle to tell other people about. When was the last time you thought about God coming and pursuing you and knowing you intimately and rejoicing in the fact that He gets to restore you? He is excited about that. He is excited about bringing you home and showing you off to His people. See, the shepherd finds the sheep And he brings the sheep home, and there's even more rejoicing. So wonder with me in just a moment, and we don't have a lot more tonight, but wonder with me for just a moment. I wonder if there's any of us here who don't long for that to be true of you. For someone to love you so much that he leaves everything else at great cost to himself, who sets aside the masses to come and find you, and to seek you out personally and individually, 
And that when he finds you, he grabs you in the weight of your mess. And he pulls you up, sweaty and nasty, in your sin and filth and embarrassment of what you have done with your life and your addictions and your worries and your struggles and your pain and your shame and everything that to this point or in your whole life you think keeps you on the outside of God's love. I wonder if any of you, if if your hearts long to know that God picks you up as that shepherd picks up the sheep and throws you around his neck, though you were functionally paralyzed on the ground through everything this world has given you, he throws you around his neck and he takes you home. Jesus says in John chapter 10, he looks up at his people and says, you know what? I am the good shepherd. I am that good shepherd. And he says, and I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus sets aside his comfort and he comes and grabs you. He sets aside his his privilege and prestige in heaven and he enters into our mess to our lying on the ground, not wanting anything to do with God, not moving toward God on our own. We are sitting on the ground, weathering and wilting away. And the good shepherd comes and he picks us up. Because he loves us. He comes and he picks you up because he loves you. You know, we say often that if we had 2020 vision, that we wouldn't have done then. You know, if we know now, if we knew then what we know now, we wouldn't have done it. And we usually say it about things that that we're embarrassed of or that, you know, we're not excited about or things that cause a lot of pain or hurt to ourselves or to someone else. And a lot of times we think that that's kind of what God has gotten himself into with us. That for those of you who are Christians and are struggling through the Christian life, you look up at your tremendous and varied struggles and you think, God certainly didn't know that this was what was going to become of me. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. God stands outside of space and time. He knew everything before anything was created. And that's why the the Bible can say that God, He predestined us before the foundation of the world in love. He created a world that He knew would abandon Him and run the other way. And He created it anyway because somehow in going and redeeming fallen, broken People who are acting like sheep who are lost and run away, somehow in that election, in love, in gathering these people and redeeming them, somehow God gets glory in that. And somehow He knew that that would bring Him more glory, more praise, and somehow that would make sense of our experience more so than if He had never done it at all. And He had created a perfect world that never fell away. I don't know. There's mystery in that. I will give you that. What this parable is saying is that God pursues you even knowing everything that you screw up in. Everything that you wallow in right now that you're so ashamed of. 
God did not make a mistake when He came and changed your heart and wanted you to follow Him. So why would God do that? On what basis does He love me? When the Old Testament, the church, the nation of Israel... You know, they had wandered around and they had left God also. They had disobeyed Him and they had worshipped other gods. They had made idols and worshipped those things. And yet God had provided for them and done miraculous things in their midst. And yet they continued to run away. And God promised them that He would give them a land where they could go and dwell because that they were a nomadic people. And on the verge of entering into this land, the people of Israel essentially were asking the same thing. God, what is it about us? Why do you love us? What are you doing with us? And God tells them through the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 7. He looks down and he says this. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You are God's treasured possession if you are in Christ. You are treasured. You are precious. And he goes on to say, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Translation into our day. It is not because of anything about them. It's not because you're good. It's not because you're good looking. It's not because you make good grades. It's not because you're morally together. It's not because you've never slept with anybody. It's not because of anything that you think you can hold up to God and say, God, aren't you so impressed with me? What this is saying is that it's about none of that. None of it. And God looks at Israel and he says this. For you were fewest of all the peoples. There was nothing special about you, Israel. But it is because the Lord loves you. This is what he's saying. I love you because I love you. He needs no reason to love us. He doesn't have a reason for love us other than it's contained within himself. He loves you. He's not basing it on anything you've done or haven't done. He loves you because he loves you. I have elected you. I have chosen you. And I am the good shepherd who is pleased to bear every single burden that you will bring into this life. Why? Because I love you. You see, when Jesus went to the cross bearing fully the burden of the sin of the world on his back, on his shoulders, it wasn't the nails that kept him up there. He was God. He could have gotten down. It was love. That when Jesus came as that good shepherd, he came to grab the sheep who had been lost and bring them all the way home to the Father. All the way home. He doesn't bring you halfway and say, well, I've got this started. Now you pick up the rest of the way. He says, I am doing everything necessary for your redemption, for your salvation. I'm bringing you home. And the way this parable ends, the story ends, is Jesus looks out at these people and says, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents and follows the shepherd and comes home than when 99 good people who need no repentance. Let me end with this story. We have uh, two daughters. We have a three-year-old and we have um, a one-year-old. And because we have two daughters, uh, we have seen Beauty and the Beast a lot. (laughs) A lot. Um, It's scratched. We've seen it so much. Um, 
That's because they proceed to play with it after we watch it, and that's not fun. Um, but here's the story. You probably know. It's actually uh, it's a, it's a French story from the 1740s. It's been made and remade in all sorts of mediums throughout the years, really uh, film, play, written, everything. And here's what's going on. Most of y'all know the story, so I'm just going to kind of skip around just a bit. That there is um, this prince who has everything given to him, and yet he still is unkind, and he bickers, and he complains. And so this enchantress visits him, you know, clothed as an old beggar, and he refuses what, um, what she's giving him, this rose. And so uh, she casts this curse on him, and he's turned into this filthy, ugly, ogre, beast thing. And knowing that he looks this way, he retreats into this castle. And that's where he stays for the balance of the story. And he stays there ashamed of the way he looks. Ashamed of what, what has become of him. And he stays that way until this beautiful young maiden named Belle comes along. And you know the, the story in the middle. They, kind of, they, they fall in love and they begin to, um, there begins to be this jealousy with Gaston and all this stuff. But he remains in the castle. And he remains a beast until that very ending scene when Belle, he's about to die through a wound from Gaston, and Belle comes upon him having, having fallen in love with him. She comes upon him and she says, I love you. In that moment, you know, the stars and the things start coming down from the sky, from the sky and, and the beast is restored. And he's restored to his original beauty. And I tell you that to tell you this, that in the heart of the beauty of the beast, there is the heart of the gospel. Look, God does not love you because you're lovely. He comes and He has chosen you and He has sent His Son to love you personally, to make you lovely. But that beast was not lovely when Bell loved him. But that beast became lovely after he was loved. And so for you, if you consider yourself in some way or for some reason unlovely or unlovable, this passage holds out to you a good shepherd who goes to find the lost sheep, the unlovely, and to carry them home to the Father. I wonder if you know that personally. That God would leave them all for the one. If your heart longs for that, then accept it. It's for you. Let's pray as the musicians come up to this last song. these praises and that this song would go deep into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.